Well, you've heard it said that in polite audiences, polite conversations, two things you're never to talk about are religion and politics. And if that's true, I'm in a world of hurt this morning, because that's what we're going to be talking about. Romans 13, Paul squares in on the origins of government, God's purpose and intention with government in our responsibility as followers of Jesus to the government. Now, this is a tough topic because there's all kinds of emotions and perspectives and feelings, especially in our day and age when it comes to the issue of the government. And it's fair to say that right now our government is not looked on with the most positive perspective, is it? It's been called the swamp, the deep state. It's known for corruption and ineptitude. You may have seen the shirt or the bumper sticker that says, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, because the government doesn't like competition. You've heard Milton Friedman, or maybe you have the late economist who said that if you put the government in charge of the Sahara Desert, they'll run out of sand in five years. And so the government's not looked on at the most favorable viewpoints. We've got the run-up to the 2020 election. Excited about that? The barrage of political ads and the, the robocalls that are going to be forthcoming? I mean, it's around October, I find myself saying, you know, I just need one more political ad to help me to make up my mind who I'm going to vote for. Nobody ever says that. But I want to put all of that aside, all of the political gimmickry, all of the heated rhetoric, all of the divisive nature of the political atmosphere in our society today. And I want us to square into what the Word of God says. I want to square into the teaching of Scripture, as it says to the purpose of government and our responsibility to it. And what I want us to see and kind of the punchline this morning is that as cynicism increases, as people are dropping out, it is the opportunity for followers of Jesus to become more engaged. And that as we pray for our communities, as we pray for our nation, as we serve in the harvest field, as we serve those who are in need and we seek to love and to make a difference, it is our opportunity to share the hope of Jesus Christ and to gain favor with those who are in positions of power and leadership and to influence the environment for better for the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 13. We're going to be hanging out in verses 1 to 7. If you didn't bring your Bibles, again, we have the Scripture. It's kind of in small print in your bulletin, and we'll have it by way of the screen. Romans chapter 13. So as you're turning there, Jesus was approached by his critics. They sought to impale him on the horns of a dilemma. And they asked him a question. They said, should you pay taxes to Caesar? It was not an honest question, it was a trick question. 
Because if Jesus says that, no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar, then he would be labeled as an insurrectionist, as a revolutionary, and he would be arrested, tried, and even killed by the Roman government. But if he said that, that you should pay taxes to Caesar, he was going to alienate the majority of the people who were listening to him, who were Jews, who hated paying taxes to the Roman government who was occupying them at the time. And so Jesus, using the spirit of wisdom and knowledge, he said, show me a coin. So he gave him this coin. He says, whose picture is on this coin? And they said, oh, it's Caesar, his picture. And in doing that, they acknowledged that they had the coin and that that coin had come from the Roman government and that they were using the Roman monetary system. They were riding on Roman roads. They were under the protections of the Roman Empire. And indeed, at some level, they were citizens of the Roman state, even though they didn't completely like that. And Jesus brought to the truth of those who would be his followers is that we are citizens of two kingdoms. Our primary citizen and our ultimate allegiance and our ultimate identity is to the kingdom of heaven. We are just passing through. We are not ultimately of this world. But nonetheless, we do live down here and we do have responsibilities to the nation, to the state, to the communities in which we live. And the Bible is very clear that in terms of our citizenship, in terms of our earthly responsibilities, that we as followers of Jesus should be outstanding. We should be exemplary in terms of how we live, our responsibilities, and our duties to the earthly realm. So having said that, let's pick up here in Romans chapter 13, where Paul gives in these seven verses, I think the clearest picture the clearest summary of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to live in the realm of the earthly states. So let's start in verse 1. Paul says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority. By the way, the word authority there means the ability and the power granted by God to exercise leadership in that place, in that office, in the earth. There is no authority except that which is God established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Notice three times Paul emphasizes God is established, God is established, God is instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. If you're no writing mood, here's the first truth this morning about God, government, and you, and it's this. Civil government is sent from God. Civil government is sent by God. Paul has said in three times that government is established by God. And folks, that goes from the White House to the local city council to the local school board. Those are established, those are put in place by God, okay? And sometimes we don't like to hear that, do we? Some of us are like, wait a minute. I, 
I can't vote for somebody. I can't follow somebody. I can't respect somebody who I don't agree with their views. I don't agree with them. I don't like them. They're incompetent. They're in this or that. And in our day and age, we put on hashtag not my president. And we've got this attitude that comes up and says, if I don't like the guy, if they're not just like me, if they don't have my standards, my values, I am not going to support them and respect them or their place of authority in government. We need to be careful about that. Let's think about Paul as he's writing to the Romans. And Rome was the center, it was the capital of the Roman Empire. And about this day and about this age, one of the empire emperors was a guy named Caligula. Let me talk a little about him because him, he was no Abraham Lincoln, I'll tell you that much. Caligula was not fit to run an empire. He wasn't really even fit to keep a pet. This guy was kind of cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, okay? First of all, he killed his mom and his brother because he was afraid that they were going to pose a threat and challenge his place of authority in the empire. Not only that, he would frequently cross-dress and go out in public and he would flaunt this cross-dressing. One time he took his favorite horse and he instituted or placed his horse onto the Roman Senate. Now, how do you do that? How does a horse vote? Do you go uh, all in favor, say A, and all against nay? I guess that's how it could work. (laughs) He even appointed his horse to be on the pro-council, which would be like the equivalent of the president's cabinet. One time Caligula got very upset. Guess what he got upset at? At the weather. And he declared war on Neptune. And he had his Roman officials or Roman soldiers to go to the water and to to whip the waves and to be in battle and then to take some of the sand and the seashells and to bring them to the Roman Empire as part of his bounty and his loot for conquering Neptune. I could go on about Caligula because I want to keep this PG-13 or family friendly, but he was no Abraham Lincoln, I'll tell you that much. And then to follow him was this guy named Claudius. And he wasn't quite as crazy, but he was just as cruel and just as mean. And then he was followed by Nero. And Nero overtook Claudius because Nero's mom had killed Claudius. And then Nero would become one of the worst killers of Christians in all of history. In fact, he had set fire to Rome, and as Rome was on fire and burning, he played the harp. He was like this great poet. And then after that, he criticized or he blamed Christians for setting Rome on fire when they didn't do it. And so he put them into the gladiator games where they were killed and mauled by the lions. He crucified hundreds of Christians at one particular party. He put Christians up on a pole, up on a stake, and he doused them with flammable liquids. And they would burn like torches through the night while a party was going on. Now, folks, this was the environment that Paul wrote. 
And, and in the midst of this, there was no idea, there was no thought that we would get our guy into the, to the Roman Senate or into the Roman Empire. Christians were a minority. But in the midst of this, Paul doesn't write the hashtag, not my Caesar. Did he agree with these guys? Did he like them? No. But he understood that their position and their authority was still established by God. Now, we're all in places. We work, we live, our neighborhoods or whatever. We don't agree with our bosses, our managers, our supervisors. And we look at the decisions that they make and we think, why do they do that? I can make so many better decisions than them. Such incompetence, such inability. And we have this attitude. But in the midst of all of that, we still need to respect the authority and the place that people have in our lives because it's established by God. And the attitude of a follower of Jesus is not to rebel, is not to cop an attitude, but is to take challenging situations and how do we serve, how do we love, how are we proactive so that we make those situations better. And so in the midst of those kind of things, Paul is calling Christians, not what the government can do for them, but what they can do for the government. And rather than dropping out and being cynical, Paul says you need to more engage And you need to be more of an example of salt and light to those who are around you. So that leads to truth number two. Civil leaders are servants of God. Civil leaders are servants of God. In the next two verses, we get the most summary job description of what government is to be and what the leaders are to do. So picking up in verse three, Paul writes, for rulers... Hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Think about the IRS. Could you put them on that level? God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Folks, you're driving down the highway. You're going too fast. You see the police there. He's got the radar gun. Does that make you very happy? Not usually. But you're glad that they're there, maybe when you're not at the time. Because they're there to enforce laws. And imagine that if we didn't have laws with those who enforce them, what kind of world, what kind of society would we live in? And as Paul talks about, notice the descriptions he gives about the role of government, the emphasis. Verse 3 says, they bring terror. They bring fear. They, in verse 4, they make us afraid. They bring punishment. This is not exactly looks like, hey, I'm here from, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, does it? There's this challenge, there's this kind of negative sense. Paul says that they carry the sword. And the sword is representative of an instrument that could maim and could even kill and could bring punishment. And so the sword was not something that they paddled you with or spanked you with. It was something that was to cause fear and terror. It was the force of law backed up by the power of the state. 
And folks, here is something we need to understand about the biblical view of government. And that is this. Government is not there to promote morality, but it is to restrain immorality. When Paul speaks of government in the verses 3 and 4, they are not there to make the world ultimately a better place. That's not their job. They are there to restrain the tendencies of evil, selfishness, and rebellion that can take place because of sin within our society. They are there to restrain evil, not so much to promote good. James Madison, the author of our Constitution, said this, If men were angels, no government would be necessary. And so here's the deal. We have this idea that if we could get the perfect government in just the right legislators and all of the godly men and women into place, that our society is going to be so much better. But that's not the role of government. It's like trying to teach an elephant to do ballet. It's just not going to happen. The role of government is to restrain evil. It is the job of families. It is the job of communities. It is the job of neighborhood associations. It is the job of the gospel to promote morality and good relationships within our society. And we are not to outsource that to the government. It was Ronald Reagan who said that the best social program is a job. Now true that is. Because when we learn to work with people, we learn to take on responsibility. We grow in becoming better people. Government should restrain the spread of immoral behavior. There is not a law on earth that can make you and me honest. But the laws that are in place can make us think twice before we commit theft. There's not a law on earth that can make you and me patriotic, but the laws that are backed up by force can restrain us from committing treason. There's a shoemaker, and his job is work ended at 5 p.m., and a guy had come into his shop and said, I need my shoes repaired. It was about 4.55. He says, I won't be able to do that today. And the customer says, well, where are you going to go? I don't see any other cars out there in the parking lot. And the shoemaker said, well, I work down here, but I live upstairs. And we as Christians, we have the same mentality. We focus, our allegiance is upstairs, it's up in heaven. But we have responsibilities that are down here that are part of the earthly state. So what does that mean for us? What are our responsibilities when it comes to our government? Well, let me give you three this morning. First of all is this. We are called to pay for our government. We are called to pay for it. Verse 5. Paul says, Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. 
I think the government is to be a watchdog that's meant to be fed, not a cow that's meant to be milked. And when it comes to paying taxes, there's a responsibility to that. And I'm going to be the first to admit I'm not a fan of paying taxes. But you know what I like? I like firefighters that are there when there's danger to our homes. I like having police. I like having police that protect the lookout for our society. I appreciate traffic lights, except when they turn red. But I'm glad they're there to govern and to kind of regulate the flow of traffic. I like national parks, and I like all the kind of benefits that the government provides. And so because of that, though I'm not a huge fan of paying taxes, I will do that. And I'll do it most of all because the Bible commands me to do it. It is a part of our obedience as followers of Jesus. Number two, we're to persuade our government. We are to persuade our government. Three times Paul has said, and we see it in verse 6, that our leaders, our government officials are what? They are servants of God. And so because of that, we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus and being a government of the people, by the people, and for the people to be a voice to our government that they are servants of God. The state, by its nature, tends to bloat its bureaucracies. It sometimes tends to abuse its power against its citizens. And so the nature of our government is to be a democracy that holds the republic into accountability. And because of that, we as followers of Jesus have a responsibility at times to speak truth to power and to let our government leaders know that they are accountable to a higher form of government, to a higher allegiance, and that is God himself. Now, some people would say, well, wait a minute, isn't that kind of confusing? The church and the state, isn't there a separation? And what I want to say about that is simply this, is that in terms of our First Amendment, the government is not to control the church, and the church is not to control the government. I completely respect that. But we as followers of Jesus, we as citizens of our country, those who are informed by a biblical conscience, have every right to speak truth to power, and to tell those who are in authority that they have a higher allegiance in terms of the laws, in terms of their responsibilities, and what they promote. Our first president, George Washington, when he was inaugurated as president and he took his oath of office, he had requested that he do so by putting his hand on a Bible. And when he put his hand on a Bible, what did he say at the end of his oath? So help me God. And every since then, every president or most every president has done that when it comes to taking an oath of office. We could look by way of the screen. Here's what Washington said in his first inaugural address. He said this, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which we have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency, that is, the hand of God. 
Then he goes on to say the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. And Washington had said that because of the founding of our nation over and over and over they had seen the hand of God work the miraculous in establishing the foundations of our nation. And because of that, how have our leaders in Congress opened their sessions? They do so in prayer. Who leads those sessions in prayer? Well, it's ordered by chaplains. And how are they paid for? They're paid for by tax dollars. And they still do that in Congress today. And they prayed because they had regularly seen the importance of God's intervention and work within our nation. It's because of that, at the end of the Declaration of Independence, they ended with these words, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They had seen the hand of God. August 24, 1814, Britain had invaded our nation. The War of 1812 lasted from 1812 to 1814. And it was there on August 24th that our capital, our, our, our White House, all of our public buildings in Washington, D.C. were being torched. And it appears like our nation was going to be turned over to England once again. But I want to show you a video of something that happened. And out of this experience came our song, The Star Spangled Banner. The video is not the best quality, but let's go ahead and take a look. Out of nowhere comes this uncanny storm, which not only dumps a tremendous torrential downpour, but it rages against this British column. One redcoat recalls the fury of this perfect storm. Our column was completely dispersed, as if it received a total defeat. Some of the men flying for shelter behind walls and buildings, and others falling flat upon the ground to prevent themselves from being carried away. Such was the violence of the wind that two pieces of cannon were fairly lifted from the ground and borne several yards away. What has started out as a blessing is about to become a catastrophic event of epic proportions. As the hurricane wreaks destruction throughout the burning city, a tornado suddenly appears from the sky and shears through the center of the capital. For two hours, the immense storm rages through Washington, dousing most of the flames that have turned the capital into an inferno. We now know a tornado actually touches down like the wrathful hand of God from the Old Testament and inflicts more casualties in the middle of that British column than they even suffered in Bladensburg. When the storm clears out the next day... Out of that experience of that war came our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. I want us to see the words written by Francis Scott Key, and he says this, as we see the words, Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand, between their love at home and war's desolation, blessed with victory and peace, may heaven's rescued land, praise the power that have made and preserved this nation. Then conquer we must, 
when our cause it is just. And this is our motto, and God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. It was in 1956 that they were put within our coinage and on our money and adopted the phrase, in God we trust. And so, friends, because of that, because of the history of our nation, because of the working of God's providence, we as believers can say to those in authority that you are accountable to a higher power. Look at the words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. He says this, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And folks, in my own community, when I have prayed, when I have served, when I've been involved, I've been with the sheriff, I've been with the city manager, I've talked through issues with them, and quite oftentimes I will say to them, will it be okay if I pray with you? And every time they are always grateful to receive prayer when it has been preceded by service and you win a sense of respect and responsibility. And toward that end on the Discovery Center, we have a half sheet of paper that you can pick up on how to pray for your leaders if you want more guidance to do that and to follow that, that command. Well, let me give you the last, the last encouragement, the last application is this. Participate in our government. Participate in our government. Paul says in verse 7, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue then revenue, if respect, then respect, if honor, then honor. Some of us right now, we're in the attitude that says, I don't care anymore. I'm sick and tired of all of the politics. I'm sick and tired of all of the division. I'm just so discouraged, I want to drop out. And, and, and some of us say, well, I don't even want to vote. My vote doesn't even really count. But I want to challenge you with that. Because Paul is saying, no, when people are dropping out, we need to step up. When people are becoming cynical, we need to be more engaged and we need to more stand out. And folks, when you say your vote doesn't count, that's not the truth, especially here in Michigan. What good will my vote do? What difference will it make? In the 2000 presidential election, it came down to 530 votes in Florida, didn't it? Do you remember that time? In the 2004 presidential election, the election was determined by 50,787 votes. That was a fraction of 1% of the population. In 2016, the vote came basically down to three states to win the electoral election. It was about 80,000 votes, and of one of those three states, it was the state of Michigan that made a decisive difference. A fraction of the people made a difference in the election and the determination of the outcome. And when we look to the election of 2020, it'll probably be much the same. It's just going to be three to four states with a small fraction of the population which will determine who gets elected. 
Understand that 14 of 14 U.S. presidential elections, they have been determined by less than 1% of the population. You say you can't make a difference? Well, in the state of Michigan, you can make a huge difference. Well, I want to invite our worship leaders, our prayer team, and those who will be to the side, and they'll pray for any particular need that you have, and those serving communion to come forward. In this particular week, I was in a discussion. We were in our Richmond outpost, and we're planning this event called Loving Your Community. And uh, we're working with people in the harvest field, and we're beginning to see a church form in Richmond. And as we were working on this planning, for, you know, Loving Your Community event, one of the guys that I was talking to, he began talking to me about politics. He was stirred up. He had a lot of strong opinions, a lot of strong viewpoints. And I could tell that probably a lot of his views were considerably different than mine. And as I listened to him, as I heard him talk, as I heard him share kind of some of his frustrations and anger, I looked at him, I didn't engage on the political level because I said, you know what? When we love our community, we love our community for Jesus. He brings us all together. He doesn't look at whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican or any of those particular things. And I said, isn't it good that there is something that is above everything that unifies us, that brings us together under the banner of love and does not engage in all of these political controversies and that when we love our community, we're going to have people of all different stripes and shades of the political perspective and Jesus welcomes every single one of them. And we need to live in a society, we need to live in a world, and we need to, as a church, be that voice of Jesus of love that unifies and brings healing and brings unity because Jesus did not come to bring salvation on Air Force One, did he? He came in a manger. He came humbly. He came in a way that very few people saw, saw him because he knew that the heart of what we needed was not political power. The heart of what we needed was love and salvation for our sin. And so when we look at Jesus, we don't look at a, an elephant, we don't look at a donkey, but we look, as we sang earlier, about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I want to say this, whatever your political persuasion may be, whatever you're struggling with this morning, you can come to Jesus, and Jesus accepts you right where you are, and then he'll lead you where you need to go.